at the Center for Education Research and Innovation, we're in the habit of asking questions that matter and looking for answers that impact. But how do you do that? How does a researcher get to that point? What we do know is that researchers are united in their curiosity. What we don't know is the stories behind the curiosity. Let's dive in. Hello everyone, thank you so much for listening to our new episode of the Curiosity Habit and today um, I have the great pleasure to have a conversation with Dr. Javid Sukera, one of the scientists at CRI. Since uh, when, Javid? Uh, since last July, so just so, a year and a half. That's great. So Javid is doing very, very interesting work on the er in areas like e equity and stigma and bias. And, and I thought that that would be a great topic to try to understand what's the story behind and what, what brought him into this, um, this kind of conversations from a research point of view. So Javid, uh, when I met you, I think it was probably at a professional development or a committee back maybe 10 years ago at, at, the, at the university. And at the time, I didn't know that you had an aspiration to becoming a, a scientist. And then I saw you at the center doing your master's and your PhD. So I was wondering, like, how that happened? How did you end up being where you are now? Yeah, it's probably because that, that was nowhere on my radar when uh, I first met you way, way back uh, when I first started my career. I think for me, Uh, I had always been interested and passionate about education, um, but I stumbled into a, an educational administrative role early on. And very quickly, it was clear to me that uh, there's nothing about medical training that actually teaches one to become an educator and was keen to bolster my credentials and sought mentorship and guidance from my department chair who uh, advised me to, to consider pursuing a master's. Uh, and that's where the idea of the MHPE started. Um, because the MHP does include a thesis, my initial engagement with Siri was uh, around thinking about and brainstorming ideas for that thesis topic. And that's just really what catalyzed this huge shift. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's interesting to me that the topic you chose is, is a very sensitive one, some, so a topic that some people might call taboo. And, and I was wondering what drove you into that? What's the story behind uh, your curiosity to, to know more about bias, stigma, and equity? So I think for me, the idea for the research has come from a lifetime of lived experience. Before coming into practice, I knew that I was very interested in issues pertaining to uh, cross-cultural medicine. I was always fascinated by how we teach health professionals to care for people who are different from ourselves. And that thread continued through my training. I had a very uh, unusual, transformative learning experience as a, as a medical student. Um, and then when I first started practice... I was really struck by the disparity in which people with mental illness are treated in our healthcare system compared to people with physical illness. But what was really um, something that challenged me was the recognition that most of the time what I was seeing was happening from people who had high expectations of themselves and one another. They were colleagues. Um, and in many ways, they were me. I was realizing that we are all a product of our experiences 
and that if we want to advance equity, then perhaps we need to look at different ways to have that kind of sensitive uh, or emotionally charged conversation. So that was the initial idea to explore how to uh, address inequities related to individuals with mental illness using education. And was there a particular experience like personal or with a patient that really triggered that sense in you? I think it was probably more of an accumulation of experiences for me. Um, if I you know, think about my own personal experiences, I grew up uh, the child of immigrants. I grew up navigating, um, having to censor myself and really try to reconcile different aspects of my identity. And then um, my medical training was very unusual. So I, I took a very uh, big uh, leap by deciding to study in a very new medical school with a sole focus on global health uh, in, in a foreign country. So, you know, being in a place um, where I was surrounded by conflict and diversity, uh, but also learning to, to become a physician in that space. And then being in the, the U.S. for my training, um, being exposed to and, and getting a lot of mentorship from thought leaders in the field, it all kind of came together in practice. I think the biggest thing for me that happened in those first few years was I had a lot of interests that seemed disconnected. Um, they didn't all kind of knit together well. And medical education or health professions education research actually became a very uh, almost serendipitous place where all of those interests came together in a cohesive way um, that I, I began to celebrate and lean into. So now that uh, it seems that you're, you're kind of in the quest to find uh, already finding some synergy among those interests, um, I was also wondering how it has been so far, like, because it's a topic that is, it can be, as I said, very sensitive. Have you faced any challenges uh, as well? Any rewarding experiences as a researcher and as a person? How is it been for you? I think it's been a roller coaster for sure. Um, the early phases when I switched over to the PhD and started to have some success with uh, getting my articles published, um, there was a lot of imposter syndrome because people started to read what I was writing and and notice it and uh, really appreciate it. And it seemed to resonate with people. And that was really exciting and validating for me because I, I really didn't expect that people would be as interested as they were. Um, I think it, in the phases of finishing the PhD, there was definitely a high that I was writing. But some of the challenges were related to um, stories that perhaps not everybody wanted to have told. So there was some tension. Um, one of my early studies really did expose some of the inequities that happen within uh, acute care settings. And it was clear to me that um, there were people that didn't want uh, that story to be told and uh, tried to censor it. The other thing is in finding my voice, I really had to work on how I can leverage the knowledge that came out of my work for meaningful change in society uh, in a way that was thoughtful and that was more signal than noise. So I found it really fascinating in the past six months um, because of the global awareness when it comes to issues like uh, racial bias and equity, 
this sort of weird in-between thing where it's very validating for me as a scientist, where this is pr probably the sole focus of my research. But it's also weird that uh, everyone's kind of finding a way to spin themselves into, into this box. Um, so I think right now is a very weird and interesting place to be. Uh, and fortunately, the mentorship that I've got has helped me to really focus back to um, being thoughtful, deliberate, uh, and bringing a scientist or a scholar's perspective to issues that may be popular or um, uh, people try to oversimplify. Yeah, on, on that topic, I, and I'm glad you brought it up, the, the impact on society, especially in the last um, few months with COVID and all the racism discussions. I don't know if many people know about your involvement with police around here and also your appearances in media. Um, could you tell us a little bit about that experience? Yeah, so it was, again, sort of an accidental thing. Uh, many years ago, I received a call asking if I was interested in a public board appointment. I asked where my name came from, and they said someone in their office uh, recommended me. So I put my name forward, not really knowing what it was about, uh, but I learned that they were looking for someone who had experience with mental health and uh, knowledge about bias and uh, that I would be a good candidate. So I put my name forward for a role on our public uh, police board here in London. I interviewed and didn't hear anything. They did a pretty extensive police check. And six months later, a uh, press release goes out and my name is in the newspaper. So uh, it was never anything I anticipated, but at the time it seemed like a really neat way uh, to bring some of my research and perspective into uh, structural and policy change within a sector completely outside of my own. So I've had no experience or exposure to the policing world. And since then, it's been a really fascinating but challenging journey. Uh, I ended up becoming chair of the board this year, and um, it's been a, a very busy year. Uh, with a public position does come a lot of demands, um, and it requires being able to be a, a communicator, a balanced communicator, especially when there are issues that might be sensitive or taboo. But what I've also found is it also opens me up to uh, a wide variety of public scrutiny in ways that uh, people probably wouldn't expect. Mm -hmm. So the other part to that is like, I'm always uh, struck by opportunities or situations in which you have to have conversations with people outside research. And, and it strikes me that being in the board, in the police, um, maybe force you to have a conversation about your research in a different way. Do you have examples of stories that you can share with our listeners into what does it mean to share those stories and have those interactions? And how did you have to adjust uh, the delivery of your research to people who are in, in different domains? Yeah, so I think I have I have a lot of stories, but it, it's hard for me to think of a specific example. In general, um, over time, as a researcher, I think I began to realize that um, how I tell my story matters, and that one of the hardest challenges for people is to take something that might be very complex and nuanced and translate it into something that's relatable for people. Not necessarily related to the police board, but um, one of the things that happened out of my initial work 
was I was invited to develop a curriculum um, for an organization with a specific need. We co-designed something, um, and what it include was, included was a workshop where I did a portion, and there were some people with lived experience of mental illness and addiction who, who took a portion. And they were storytellers. They told a story. And I realized while watching them speak that my infographic on my PowerPoint slide in no way has the same power that a really compelling story does. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the, the past six months or so with the pandemic and examples of how important cohesive, clear, um, and relatable scientific communication is highlights that I have to work on translating the science into something that people can connect to. Um, and what that requires is stepping outside of my comfort zone um, and focusing on, uh, I guess, a competency around storytelling that, again, isn't always developed uh, as part of our scientific training. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because um, you appear in the news sometimes uh, as, the, as an expert, right? They're asking you for your opinion. And when I listened one day, uh, it felt to me that they were trying to make you give an opinion about if you were in agreement or disagreement with certain politicians. And, and I was getting, oh my gosh, what's going to happen here? How is it going to handle? Uh, how was that? Like, how do you feel about people asking you to, to give opinions beyond being a researcher? It's a different, uh, different kind of thing, definitely. Um, there's a, I, I was very young when um, I uh, was involved in student government, and there was some media training that I participated in, and I think that a lot of that media training I still keep very close to myself to this day. What they emphasized was, again, uh, knowing what your mantra is going to be, knowing the sort of key talking points that you can circle back to in a way that um, helps you steer yourself back to the core of the message that you want to share. And so I think I still adhere to that. Media and journalism has changed uh, very much since I had that training when I was younger. And I do think that, um, that it's really important that um, media scrutinize and critically question things that happen. Um, so when it comes to the work uh, at the police board, I think I do expect it to kind of be scrutinized and challenged, but I also think that it's important that I stay anchored to the core of the message that I want to share uh, and pay very close attention to what's being asked, why, uh, and, and how I want to answer it in a meaningful and authentic way. This idea that you raised about you know, opinion and, and people asking for an opinion. It's really, really a, a fascinating one because I think we are in an age where with the proliferation of information, uh, opinion is often presented as fact. And what we need to be able to be very, very careful of as scientists is to have some deference and humility. There are times where we might be asked for our opinion um, and what we really want to talk about is our science. So I think that can be a cue to us sometimes to say, well, you know, my work really doesn't fit into the scope of being able to answer your question, but I can suggest to you uh, maybe some other people or good people to talk to. Uh, ever since I've, I've gotten more into the public, I do get a large volume of media requests. 
and I am always filtering and scrutinizing them. If, if the request is related, for example, to a tweet I put out on a topic that I wouldn't consider myself an expert on, uh, I seek someone within my network and try to get them connected to the media because I'd rather amplify their voice as an expert um, in that area than, than my opinion. Mm-hmm. Okay. So one of the other things that I, I find really interesting about your work is the topics themselves. But it also comes with this idea that you have to listen to very harsh and sometimes sad stories from participants because we're doing qualitative research. Um, and, I don't, and I imagine that will weigh on you at some point. And I was wondering, what makes you wake up in the morning to be a researcher? What drives you? It's a great question. Um, there's really two parts to it. In terms of the emotional nature of the work, I think I draw parallels to my clinical life as a psychiatrist, uh, working with people who are survivors of trauma, um, caring and creating space and holding space for very heavy stories. I think, uh, I feel like that's something I've worked on. And so um, when I'm hearing sensitive and difficult and emotional stories, I'm almost sort of automatically able to try to navigate that as a researcher. But as far as what, what motivates me, I've always wanted to make the world better. And I know that, that that can sound very much like a cliche, but I think impact is what motivates me. Um, research is amazing. I'm so happy to have found a home in a community of, of uh, health professions researchers But if my work isn't moving the needle, if my work isn't having impact, then to me, there's really no point. Uh, I think I wake up every day to have an impact, um, big and small, whether it's an impact um, mentoring someone or, or inspiring someone to take on a challenge that they may have been afraid to take on or to tell a story uh, or explore a challenging problem, uh, shedding light into corners Um, where people haven't really looked, that to me is really exciting. And knowing that those stories resonate is what gives me energy. The, the best parts of my life are the days where I come home and, and I know that I've made an impact um, and uh, that it means something to other people. That's great. And, and on the topic of impact, um, because you are one of, the, I, in my opinion, one of the people leading this, this wave of exploring taboo topics or sensitive topics. And, and I know there are some people who are doing that, but with time, you get to get a little bit down in, and wondering how, how do I move forward? So what would you tell those junior researchers who are trying to find their way by exploring complicated topics and yet being able to remain um, passionate about them? Wow. I wonder if we could talk for like five hours about that. I think it's a, <laughs> it's a really big question. Um, I, I would probably distill it to two things. One is how we, we relate to ourselves. So I think we all need to be better at being kind to ourselves and having compassion for ourselves. Um, if a topic really matters to you, that's amazing and awesome. Stay anchored to that. Stay very much anchored to that. Of course, you're going to need to translate that and make it resonate for others. But staying connected to what matters to you is extremely important to maintain 
your momentum, your energy, your stamina, and your motivation to see a challenging project through. And the second relates to, to other people. You have to have a community of people that support you, an eclectic community of people that uh, includes people you can be vulnerable in front of, people who are uh, from a different background, a professional background than you, uh, and people that you can trust to give you feedback that can help you be better. Um, there's so much of our world that sucks our energy. And I think we need to surround ourselves with people that give us energy. And I'm fortunate I have a community of people that help me with that. I miss them in person with the conditions we're in. Um, but it, it, it's extremely important. We were never meant to do this alone. And so having that support is a, a crucial ingredient to, to see a challenging topic or a challenging line of research through. Mm-hmm. Perfect. So I, I kind of know a little bit of uh, where your research program is, is moving forward, but uh, I wonder if you could share with the listeners, what is your next curiosity in your research? What, what, are, what is a topic that you are beginning to explore that maybe not many people know about? Well, I guess I have a thousand and one curiosities. Um, <laughs> And uh, there's so many. Um, My work started really looking at bias and inequity more in an interpersonal sense and relationships and how we relate to one another and looked at models of education that enhanced compassion and and, uh, self-reflection. It's shifted in the last year or two to that work, but also looking at uh, how inequity can be embedded structurally in healthcare organizations or uh, within policy within higher education. But the, the topic that's sort of brewing that I'm um, still starting to develop a more cohesive line of inquiry on is actually about the role that emotions play in research. Um, just like you mentioned, there are a lot of topics that we don't always uh, end up exploring because they could be considered taboo or there's something about the topic that challenges um, the status quo or sort of the powers that be. But in order to do that work, uh, particularly qualitative inquiry or qualitative forms of inquiry, we are often taught to um, compartmentalize our emotions from the process. Mm -hmm. So something I'm starting to play with is the idea that we need to be better at recognizing, understanding, and managing all the different complex emotions that play a role in how we choose what to study, how we actually undertake the process of research in in health professions education, but also how we tell our stories uh, and where and how they resonate. So stay tuned. It's still in the early stages, but I do hope that it will uh, be something that uh, that uh, connects with others. Well, I'm sure it's going to be from the conversation we've been having at the center too, because it's an area that I guess all qualitative researchers struggle one way or the other, we face not only struggle, but we all have to face in either way. So I would say the same, stay tuned. Um, my final question, Javid, is one that I asked to all our, our guests in, in, the, in the podcast is, what is one thing about yourself that people might not know that makes you the researcher you are? And dig deeper and see what you can surprise us with. 
Well, I'm pretty open, so it's hard to think of things that perhaps people don't know. Um, one thing uh, people may not know is that when I was younger, probably um, elementary school, I uh, was very, very anxious speaking in front of people. Um, even now, I give tons of talks and I still get nervous. Um, I still sweat a lot. And that uh, is often surprising to people because it doesn't always show. But I think what, why that's important for me is because it's our own experiences of vulnerability that I think are the most important things for us to explore and deconstruct uh, in order to be to be better at what we do in research. Um, the, the, the whole process of inquiry, really, it requires us to connect not just to the work we do at a professional level, but also at a personal level. Uh, like I said earlier, deciding the topics we explore, how uh, we embark on the studies that we do, and, and how we tell the stories that we do, it is always a deeply personal thing. And uh, I think that it's my own experience of experiences of vulnerability that for me have a lot to do with uh, what I've what I've landed on and uh, where I think that uh, research is going to go into the future. Okay. Well, thank you very much, David. It's been a pleasure having a conversation with you, and I personally look forward to what what's coming from you next. Curiosity on dealing with emotions. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. No problem. And thank you everyone for listening, and see you in the next episode. This has been The Curiosity Habit. This podcast is hosted by Syra Cristancho and produced by Monica Molinero. You can find all our episodes on podcast apps like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.